All right, well, we've come to the end, the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, the end of the matter. And as we've been at the end here, just going back through why we studied this book, what the point has been thus far, uh, hopefully it's, it's hit the target, that you do have a greater affinity for this book than you did when we started. That maybe when you heard, hey, we're going to be studying the book of Ecclesiastes, and there was an internal groan too deep for words as the Spirit was interceding for you to have patience uh, before the, the throne, that now you're, you're looking back at it going, okay, yeah, I, I get it, and I appreciate this book more. Maybe it's still not going to be the top of your list as far as your devotional time, but hopefully by the time you come to it with uh, our daily Bible reading this year, it'll be a, a breath of fresh air again to come back to this study. And then also it's been to, to teach us how to love this life under the sun, which is really where the paradigm shift enters into this book because for so long we're tempted to think that this book is all about how this life under the sun is futile and pointless and doesn't matter. In fact, I've been doing my daily Bible reading in a a translation, not the ESV, but a different translation, and it came to Ecclesiastes the other day, and it opened up futility of futilities, all is futile. And I sat there thinking to myself, no, that's not right. That's not what he was saying. He's saying that it's a mist, that it's a vapor. And so, yeah, we can love life here. We can enjoy life here, understanding that this is not going to last that's his whole point here, that it's not going to satisfy us ultimately and in a way that, that sustains. Well, then we also encountered in this book a lot about death and studied about the end of our lives and the fact that that is inevitable for all of us, that we are going to face death. And we don't know when that will be, but the fact that it is coming for all of us at some point in time that has been fixed in place by the Lord, we should live differently in light of that 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 should impact the way that we make decisions, some of which is that next goal, which is to loosen our grip on the things of this earth. As we look around and we see the things that the world wants us to value, the world wants us to hold on to, the world wants us to identify by, the world wants us to cherish, right? The reality that we're going to die and then the question that that is begged is what happens to all those things? The reality that, that all those things are gone, that we bring nothing with us, Uh, sobers us and causes us to say, okay, well then I really can't take any of those things which are good things and make them an ultimate thing because the only ultimate thing, the only ultimate one in this life is God. And that's the one that we need to be living this life for because someday our final goal, we're going to end up standing before him. Believer, you're going to stand before Jesus Christ in the beam of seat of Jesus. And we're talking about that in our, our final message tonight. To receive what is due for what you've done in the body, whether good or evil. If you're out there and you're not a Christian and you know you're not a Christian tonight and you are are simply here because uh, a buddy invited you or uh, you've got a wife with sharp elbows and she nudged you hard enough and so you're here or you're here because you like sandwiches. Let me tell you, if you're out there and you're not a Christian, the appearance that awaits you when you die is as God as your judge and he will cast you into the flames and the, the pit of hell for all of eternity without Christ. And so that is coming, and the book of Ecclesiastes prepares us for that moment, whether believer or unbeliever, what it's going to be like and how the life that we live now impacts that time and that appointment that we have. Well, as we conclude the book, we come to the passage that really summarizes all of Solomon's thought process. And it's the passage that inspired the the title of this series, which is beginning at the end or the end of the matter, right? Right? And it's the, the capstone of the argument that Solomon makes, Solomon makes here, and it begins in chapter 12, verse 9. So let's read verses 9 through 14. It says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. 
The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there's no end, and much study is weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. There's been a lot about this book that's been difficult. Right? It's, it's helpful to have a different perspective. And yet at the same time, there's a lot about the, the book of Ecclesiastes that's difficult. It's been difficult to preach as well. There's some things about Ecclesiastes that are repetitive, some things about Ecclesiastes that are still uh, a little muddy and confusing, and certainly there's a lot about the book of Ecclesiastes that's convicting. As Solomon gets in our kitchen, so to speak, and presses in on some areas that we, he strikes a chord with us. It hurts a little bit. It smarts. And we say, whoa, easy, Solomon. Don't push there. You can push everywhere else, but that, that's, that one hurts when you lean in there, whether that's in the area of of finances for you, or career, or family, or money, or sex, or whatever it is, Solomon presses in on us, and that conviction comes to, to bear. There are times that it's been difficult, and we should come to expect nothing less from the Word of God, right? That's what Hebrews says. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews four twelve and 13, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. If you read that passage and think about that passage, that's a painful process that the writer is talking about there. That the word of God is like a surgeon's scalpel. Well, none of us want to be awake when the surgeon cuts into us, do we? And yet, there is no spiritual anesthesia, right? There's no spiritual numbness that the Lord provides for us. When the word of God goes to work in our life, it it oftentimes hurts. It pierces, it divides, it exposes, it lays us bare, and it leaves us with no excuse before the great physician who has pointed out, here's where you're sick, here's where you're in need of healing, here's where you have a problem, and we have nothing left to say except, yeah, you're right, Solomon puts it this way in our passage as he lands the plane here. He says, the words of the wise are like goads. Like goads. A a goad was a staff that a shepherd carried so that when a sheep began to wander from the path that he wanted the sheep to go, he would take the goad, take the staff that would have these nails embedded in the end of it, and he would give the, the, the sheep a little love tap. And the animal would feel the the sharpness of the goad and realize, oh, I don't want to go that way because if I keep going that way, I'm going to continue to run into these goads and that's not a good thing. So I need to go back in the opposite direction. I need to go away from the goads and not run up against the goads. Well, Solomon's saying the words of the wise, the words of this book, the words of scripture are like goads. This is what scripture does for us. And yes, at times it can be painful. As the word pierces, as the word divides, as the word lays us bare, it is painful. And and the book of Ecclesiastes has had those moments for us. But when we understand the purpose is for our good, just like that shepherd with that goat is, is wanting to protect that sheep from wandering off into danger, right? When we understand the purpose is for our good, 
then those goads become not something that's an annoyance to us, not something that's even all that painful for us anymore, but something that we can give thanks for. Our first point tonight is this, praise God for the goads of Ecclesiastes. Praise God for these, that he's given us this book and pressed in and and laid bare all of our idols, right? If there's nothing else about this book, the book of Ecclesiastes has completely demolished every one of our idols, especially as men. Chapter 2 has done that for us, right? As he walked through and said, I pursued all of these things, and at the end, all of it was what? It was vanity. I'm not going to tell you there was no pleasure, but the pleasure that was there, it was here and then gone, and I was left wanting more, and there was no more to be found. Remember what Solomon said about that? He said that this is the world that God has designed for us that way. God has created a world with these goads, these goads of disappointment, these goads of discouragement, so that we will be retrained to think rightly about the world that we live in. That our hope, that our joy, that our satisfaction is not found where the world wants us to find it, but it's found in fearing God, in obedience to God, in faith in God. Some of these goads in the book, let's go back through some of these. Ecclesiastes 1-2, as Solomon opens the book, there's a goad right off the bat that hits us between the eyes that we don't like when he says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Right? That's why people read this book and say, oh man, Ecclesiastes, really? There's a misunderstanding there, but even when we understand it correctly, it's a goad. Oh, man, there's nothing lasting that will satisfy me in this earth? Really, Solomon? That's a goad from the Lord. Ecclesiastes 1.8 is another goad. When Solomon says, all things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That's a goad. You're never going to see something that you're going to say, okay, I, I, I'm satisfied. I saw this and I no longer need to be entertained because I've seen the most entertainment, entertaining thing in the, the world. You know, you're never going to hear enough. You're never going to get enough information, whether it be gossip or news or whatever it is, that's going to cause you to go, okay, I've heard enough. I've heard all I need to hear. I don't need to hear anything else, right? It's that goad that says you're never going to be satisfied by chasing after or being entertained under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1.15, Solomon says, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. Your path that takes that sharp turn that you weren't expecting, well, God is the one that has made that crooked and you can't make it straight. That which is lacking in your life, the godly marriage that you want or the, the faithful children that you would love to have, the job that you want, what is lacking, what is not there, well, you can't count it. You can't count it as though it is there. It's a goad from Solomon. Ecclesiastes 2.11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil that I expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon after saying, look at everything that I've done. All the accomplishments. And we look at Solomon and we say, wow, Solomon, you did way more than any of us in this room are ever going to accomplish. You had way more money than any of us in this room are ever going to have. And what was your conclusion, Solomon? It was vanity. It was meaningless. It was not satisfying. It's a goad. Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 20. 
Solomon says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from dust and to dust all return. This is Solomon introducing death and he's introducing death in a cold and sterile way by saying you look at Fido and you look at yourself in the mirror, you're both going to die. Congratulations. If your mindset is survival of the fittest and you pledge allegiance to Darwin, here's your future. You're no better off than this dog because both of you are going to die. It's a goad from Solomon. Ecclesiastes 5.10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Again, a goad. Ecclesiastes 6, 3-4. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Again, a goad. You have the family you want. You have a hundred kids and a job to pay for them all, right? With the increased child tax credit, maybe you don't need one, right? With a hundred kids. And you've got all your grandkids, and you've got the family table, and you've got family time, and family dinner, and family this, and family that, and your kids get scholarships, and they go on to be the best in the world. Hey, you know what? It's vanity. It's not going to satisfy you. You live thousands upon thousands of years. It's vanity. It's not going to satisfy you. Ecclesiastes 9.11, one more. He says, and again, I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor the riches to the intelligent, nor the favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. The unpredictability of life is that goad from Solomon. And we need to praise God for these things, even though at first it seems like we don't want them. The reason why we need to praise him is because he's goading us in a way to protect us. He's goading us in a way to retrain the way that we think about this life so that when we come to the end of the matter, verse 14, God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil, that when we stand before Jesus, that Lord willing, if we'll listen to the goads of the book of Ecclesiastes, if we'll listen to the goads of Scripture, that what we will find is way more in the good column than in the evil column. That's what the goads are there for, man. They're not there to inflict pain for no purpose. They're there to inflict pain for the purpose of causing us to go, okay, that's not the direction I need to be going. I need to refocus my life, refocus my, my, uh, my path, and pursue a different direction. So we need to praise God for these goads. Come to the New Testament, and we find the Apostle Paul, if you remember this, and Apostle Paul says in Acts 26, 14, when we had all fallen to the ground, this is his conversion, I heard a loud voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. See, Saul didn't realize this, but through his upbringing as a Pharisee and his tutelage under Gamaliel, God was preparing him for a life of ministry so that as he wrote the book of Romans, he would be able to recall the Old Testament in a moment's notice and see how the fulfillment is there in Christ, right? See, God was providing these goads all along the way. And even as he's standing there and watching Stephen be stoned and he's holding the cloak 
of, of all the people that are stoning Stephen to death, and he's giving hearty approval. That's Saul kicking against the goads. Well, finally, God brought out the big goads, didn't he? And literally kicked him off his donkey and blinds him. He says, okay, Saul, enough. Enough. Get the point of what I'm doing here. Paul was kicking against the goats. The book of Proverbs talks about not swerving. Proverbs 4.27. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Well, how are we going to do that but to know that we've got the goads on either side of us that are going to keep us on that path that the Lord wants us on? That's the Bible. That's Scripture. Man, I don't know if any of you are bowlers in the room, but when you first start out bowling, what do you make sure is, is present on either side of the lane? The bumpers, right? Well, God's a little bit more sharp towards us. He doesn't say the bumpers of the wise are good. He says the goads of the wise are good. We don't have pillows on either side of us because it'd be too tempting for us to lay down and take our load off, right? We've got goads so that we stay, but the idea is the same, so that we don't veer off course. And God's word is instrumental in that. Not only does he call them goads, but he, he calls them nails, he says, the words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed. The idea there is the tent pegs that would hold the tent down so that when the gusts come up, when the winds of adversity, when the winds of opposition come up, when the winds of false doctrine, when the, the winds of, of, of false teaching blow against you, you're not going to move. That's the sayings of the wise, he's saying. Those are the things that have staked you to your position, like nails firmly fixed. Paul says in Ephesians 4.14 that God's intent is that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Well, how are we going to be like that? How are we going to remain steadfast? How are we going to be firmly fixed and not carried away by those things? Well, by giving ourselves over to the scriptures, to God's word and to allowing God's word to be those goads, to be those nails firmly driven so that we will be immovable. So men, as you think about the goads, not just the goads of Ecclesiastes, but all the goads in scripture, let me ask, what, what do you do with those typically? All of us in this room have different goads. When you come across that passage in the daily Bible reading, or you hear a sermon preached on a passage that is that goad for you, what do you do? Do you kick against it? In other words, do, do you avoid that? When that passage that, that is piercing with, with that precision to, to divide between joint and marrow in the hand of the divine surgeon, when that passage comes up in your daily Bible reading, do, do you just avoid it? Do you skim over it real quick so you don't hit on any of the concepts that are, are going to light you up and, and, and create that weight of conviction? When you hear that sermon preached and that conviction presses in on you and that goad begins to press in on you, do you find a way to rationalize and excuse yourself from being in the, the, the sights of the application there? Or do you embrace these things? Seeing them not as, as, as cruel, but as, as life-giving. Do you approach them with thanksgiving? Do you understand, do you seek to understand these passages more fully? Okay, this struck a chord. Let me figure out why this struck a chord with me. Let me dive it. What does this look like? What does this mean? What am I not doing that I should be doing? What am I, what am I doing that I, I shouldn't be doing, that this passage is identifying? 
do you look for ways to uh, adjust your life, your thinking, your attitudes, your behavior, so that that goad has its intended effect in your life? See, as, as Christians, men, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, and one of the purposes that we have the Spirit dwelling within us is to, to activate the goads of God's Word as we walk through this life. Solomon has provided plenty for us in this study. He's basically popped every balloon that we could put all of our hopes in, hasn't he? But notice what he says here. He says, the words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed, or the collected sayings. They are given by one, what? Shepherd. They're given by one shepherd. Solomon's intentional with the language here because he wants us to understand. He doesn't say they're given by one taskmaster. They're given by one owner. He doesn't say they're given by one Lord. They're, they're given by one God. They're given by one king. They're given by one sovereign. They're given by one ruler. They're given by one creator. He doesn't say any of that. He could have. He didn't. Instead, he said what? He, he said they're given by one shepherd. This is another reason why we can praise God for these goads is because the, the reason is, is that they're applied to our lives as, as the shepherd loves us and guides us and cares for us, right? I mean, when you read that, hopefully your mind races ahead to John chapter 10 when Jesus says, what does he say there? He says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. If Jesus is going to lay down his life for us, when he's coming at us and bringing these goads to bear in our life, we better believe that that's done out of a love and a care and a concern for us. And Solomon didn't know John 10, but he had the same concept in mind. Understood that this is not cruel, but this is a loving act whereby God goads us with the words of the wise, goads us with the words of Scripture so that we will be better off for it in the end. The Scriptures have a unique way to do that, whereas there are a lot of other books out there that we can read that can be thought-provoking, and maybe can even provide some good things for us, but ultimately nothing can do that other than what? God's word. The Spirit is not taking the top 10 books from the Christian living section at the local bookstore and goading you with those things. If you feel convicted in a, in a book written by a, a human author has changed your life, hopefully it's because of the way that he has brought the word of God to bear on your life through reading that book, which would mean that ultimately the change is still coming from God's word, Yes? Look at what Solomon says next. He says, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Beyond what? Beyond the goads of scripture. Beyond the wise sayings. Beyond, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end. And of much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now, this, this was written so long ago. Can you imagine what he would say right now? About the making of many books? I mean, you can self-publish with the click of a button right? See, but I, I believe what Solomon is driving at here, and I, I think what he understands, and, and this is why he follows this up right on the heels of the goads, is because I think he understands that the temptation that we all face is when we run into something that hurts a little bit, we look for a different approach, a different point of view, a different take, a different angle to let ourselves off the hook. And that's when we're tempted to turn to these other writings and these other books and these other perspectives and we know that in our, in our culture and our society today. 
You know that you don't have to look far to find a book or a personality or a politician or a talk show host who's going to be able to justify really any belief or conviction or sin that you have in your life. I mean, just to take this to its fullest extent, right? There is now an advocacy group in our country for people who are pedophiles. If we can find a way to say, well, that's okay, then you can find a way to say that anything is okay. And if you dig hard enough, you're going to find somebody who wears the name tag that says, I'm a Christian, that's going to let you have a different approach and a different interpretation that's going to let you off the hook of the Spirit's conviction. And that person is going to grab the scalpel and pull it away and say, don't cut there, you don't need to. And Solomon's warning against that, saying, look, be careful. There are books written on everything under the sun, to borrow from his phrase. There are people with points of view on everything under the sun. And if you're not careful, and if you drift too far from the scriptures, there's a danger. And that's why he says, my son, what? What's the word he uses? My son, beware. See, Solomon's warning. Just like the watchman in Ecclesiastes 33, when he says this in Ecclesiastes 33, 6, if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. The the watchman, Solomon here in this instance, is warning his son because he loves his son. He's warning us because he loves us by extension of this being written by the hand of God through Solomon, right? He's warning us and saying, beware of chasing what you want to hear because you'll find it is what the warning is. But those words that you find aren't going to be words given by the shepherd. They're going to be words that are multiplied through the writing of much books, through the weariness of the flesh. And so he's saying, don't drift. Don't go on a treasure hunt for what meets your needs. Beware of anything beyond these. That is the sayings of the wise. Our second point tonight is this. I I want you to think about God's word and ask yourself, do you really trust in God's word? And, And what really fundamentally underlies your trust in God's word? Because I think what Solomon's getting at here is this. We need to trust in God's word because it is God's word. And that's what differentiates this book from the other books. Because at the end of the day, this book is signed by God. None of the other ones are. This book comes from the mind of God. None of the other books do. This book boasts of being the breathed out words of God. None of the other books can. This book carries the authority of God's word, whereas really none of the other books do. And so we need to trust. And Solomon's saying, stay with the collections of the wise and don't venture off because this is where you are the safest. This is where the goads are being applied. So we need to trust in God's word because it is God's word which trumps any talk show host, any politician, any author that you might otherwise want to hear, listen to, and follow. The series has asked the question so many times, right? How should we then live? And the answer to that question is primarily found in the scriptures. 
first and foremost in God's word. When somebody says, what's the most impactful book you've ever read? If the answer is not the Bible, then there's a problem. Well, does that mean that there's no truth outside of the Bible or that we don't need to read or engage with anything outside of the scriptures? No. Acts 7.22. Stephen, in his great defense, speaks of Moses, and he says of Moses, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. Was it wrong or sinful for Moses to be instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians? Doesn't apply that. And that's not certainly what Stephen's trying to do. He's not trying to indict Moses in the context here, so I don't think we can even draw that from the space between. Or think of Daniel, right? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're taken captive, they're brought to Babylon, and what happens? They get put into the king's training system, don't they? And what does it say in the book of Daniel? That God gave them wisdom above and beyond all of their contemporaries and even all of the wise men in Babylon as they were instructed in the things of Babylon, in their wisdom, in their literature, in their language, right? And so there was a a propriety about that in the right place, in the right circumstance, as long as that didn't become where they were looking to for their ultimate source of wisdom. Or how about the Apostle Paul in the book of Titus? Titus 1.12, Paul says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. But realize that Paul had to know that first, didn't he? To be able to pull that to mind as he's writing this letter. That meant that Paul was aware of this writing. Paul had studied these other things. So look, I'm I'm not advocating for you to become a a, a hermit and to pull back into your bedroom and to throw out every book and to burn it all, right? And to just read the Bible for the rest of your life. If you want to do that, I'm convinced that you're not going to be too bad off. I mean, the Bible's a good thing to just major in for the rest of your life. That's fine. But look, all I'm saying is if you like to read books on sports or you know, the stock market, because that's your, your bag, that's fine, whatever. I, that's, that's okay, but just realize that the goads are in God's word, that the benefit is in God's word, right? And, and, and I think that the biggest temptation here, men, for us is, is when it comes to Christian living, right? You, you think about the latest book by Piper, or the latest book by MacArthur, or the latest book by Fabares, right? And you think about those and you say, okay, so Pastor PJ, are those things bad for us to read? No. No, read them, be blessed by them, but understand that the goat isn't the writing of the man, the goat is the writing of the word that the man happens to comment on. Right? At the end of the day, a book that transforms us and impacts us as believers needs to be saturated with God's word. And the reason it impacts us needs to be because it sheds light on God's word in a way that we hadn't approached before. And so the goad, the power, is in the, script, in the scriptures, in the word of God. Uh, Philip Ryken, president of Wheaton College, says this, How many books have been written, yet how little most of them are able to teach us about the knowledge of God or the way of everlasting life? I think he's right. He's echoing King Solomon here. Of the writing of books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of flesh. Uh, maybe your, your mind is going there if you know this verse. If not, hopefully it'll be a blessing to you. It's one of my favorites from Spurgeon. Visit many good books, but live in the Bible. Visit them, go to them occasionally, the good ones. But live in the Bible. Right? Live in the Bible. Make sure that is where you're, you're being fed first and foremost. 
It's the safest place to be, and that's where the goads are active. In verse 13 and 14, Solomon finishes. Finishes in a way that, honestly, he probably could have just started and saved 12 chapters. Although those 12 chapters set us up for this ending, don't they? When he says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. These verses should come as no surprise to us, not just because we've referenced them quite a few times already in the study, but also become, because, again, they're, they're the logical outcome of his argument. That's what he's doing here. He's summarizing it for us. It's, it's that neat bow at the end of his, his paper. This is a good conclusion. This is an A-plus conclusion from Solomon here. Considering looking back over everything, saying, okay, now, so what? The application, the take-home, the takeaway is this. Everything's been heard. You, know, you want to know what your duty is moving forward? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Y'all, this is a daily thing. This is an everyday thing that we need. I don't know if any of your wives at home have stenciled anything on, on the walls. Maybe that's too much of a 90s thing, but maybe some of you are still living in your 90s house and it's still there, Right? The, the Jeremiah 29, 11 out of context passage. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, to send you into exile with all your family, right? And then I'm still gonna do good to you. No, whatever you've got stenciled there. If you wanna stencil something, take out your stencils, go to Home Depot, buy what your wife's gonna think you're crazy, but it's okay. You can say, Pastor PJ told me I should do this. Get your stencils, get a stepladder, push your bed out of the way, take the stencil up to the ceiling above your bed, tape it up there, get some black spray paint, and spray paint the words, Fear God and keep his commandments above your bed. So that every single morning, that's the first thing that you see. Because honestly, men, that's what we need every single day. This reminder, this goad, every single day. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of men. Y'all, we will never be done with this. Until we're in the presence of our Savior. We will never be done with this daily pursuit of saying, okay, I need to die to myself and follow Jesus. It's part of life from here on out. And Solomon's saying, look, this has been my point the whole way. I've been writing all of this stuff to get to this moment. And here it is. You want to know it? Here it is. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Our final point this evening is this, man. Don't waste Solomon's wisdom. If you want to know the biggest so what of this series, right? It doesn't have anything to do even with my, my five points or goals that I put up at the beginning of each of these. The biggest so what of this series is Solomon's so what, which is ultimately God's so what, which is fear God and keep his commandments. Align your life with God's word. Because, and, and here's Solomon as the shepherd who loves us and cares for us and is concerned for us. He says, because listen, here it is. The, the end is this. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And, and you, you can almost hear the regret in Solomon's words, can't you, as he's writing them. 
As Solomon looks back over the life that he's lived and he's now writing these words to his son, my son, beware of drifting from the word. The word is the, the goads, right? Beware, and, and here's what I want for you, son. I want you to fear God and keep his commandments because there's gonna be a time, there's gonna be a day, there's gonna be an end where we stand before him and everything that we've done is gonna be brought into judgment. Now, I referenced two groups at the beginning of this message. The first, for those of you who are here who would say, I'm not a Christian and I know I'm not a Christian, I, I want you to understand that that means that there is an eternally damning judgment that awaits you. You say, well, that's not loving. No, it is. Because here's the thing, there's a, a cold, harsh reality when you appear before the, the not the, the, the Bema Seat, but the great white throne of God. And God opens up the book of life, and, and if your name is not found written in the book of life, which there's only one way for that to happen, and I'll get to that in just a moment, but if your name is not in that book of life, what awaits for you is, depart from me, I never knew you, and you will be cast into a place that the scriptures describe as a place of eternal judgment where the smoke of those being tormented goes up day and night forever and ever without end in the book of revelation it is the lake of, of fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth a place that jesus called the outer darkness and so i want to do what ezekiel calls the watchman to do and to warn you tonight and to say if you are not in christ that is your future if you die tonight if you have an embolism at your table right now and you're gone, you will wake up in the pits of hell. You say, I don't like that. Good. Because I've got some good news for you. If you don't want that reality, you don't have to face that reality. But here's the answer. You have to realize that you deserve that reality. That that future should be yours. In fact, it should be the, the future of every single one of us in this room, myself at the, the top of that list. And that future should be ours. And we need to admit that and say, yes, I'm guilty before a holy God and a sinner. And realize that that, that is a massive problem for us because we can't, we can't outwork our sin. You can't be good enough. There's no time served for your sin. It, it's, it's there. The Bible says we are storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of judgment. And that wrath is going to be either yours or it's going to be Christ's. And this is where the good news comes in. If you admit that you are a sinner before a just and holy God and that you cannot be good enough before him no matter how many good works that you do, here's what you do. You realize that God out of love sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for those sins which means all of your guilt was laid on Christ. All of the wrath that you were deserved, God exhausted on Jesus. And tonight, if you will say, okay, I'm gonna trust him as my savior, that he took my place, that he bore my penalty, my punishment. He died for me. If you will repent from your sins, which means to say, I'm done living for myself. I'm done living for who I was. And to turn from that life and to say, I want to live for Jesus now and put my full trust in Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. Then your future is no longer the pits of damnation and hell, but it's glory and it's the future of eternity with Jesus. So let me plead with you, if that's you tonight, to make that decision. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to come with a track record. You can come with faith and repentance tonight and you will be embraced and accepted by God.
That's the beginning of fear God and keep his commandments. It's realizing that he's ultimately the judge and the first commandment that you need to keep is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The rest of you who have done that, there's a judgment that awaits us as well, and it's the Bema seat, right? It's the great white throne, or not the great white throne, sorry. It's the Bema seat. That's when we stand before Jesus, not to be judged heaven or hell, but to receive our evaluation as far as the life that we lived and the eternal rewards that we've amassed. And I hope you desire eternal rewards. I hope you desire to have less burned up and more come through that fire as the precious gems and the, the riches and the crowns. And if that's a life that you desire, then Solomon is telling you and saying to you, hey, here's the end, fear God and keep his commandments. Every single day, wake up, okay, what, how, do I, how do I please the Lord today? What does that look like in my life today? Spend time with him in his word. Listen to sermons. Pray to him. Take his word and, and apply it to your life and live it out. It's a call to you as a, as a believer. Paul talks about these judgments in Romans 2.16. He says, on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There's nothing, right? Solomon says, look, every deed into judgment, whether secret, every secret thing, whether good or evil. Paul's saying the same thing. God, God through Jesus is going to bring every secret of men into judgment. Jesus said something similar in Luke 8. He said, nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Revelation 20, here's the great white throne for unbelievers. It says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. This is not a judgment for believers, but a judgment for unbelievers. It's the final pronouncement of judgment and the casting into the lake of fire. 2 Corinthians 5.10, this is Christians. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Man, that should be all the, the motivation that we need, right? I mean, the way that Solomon ends the book, is, as we consider this, this should be all the motivation we need for sanctification. There should be no more sanctifying thought in life than the, the bema seat of Jesus. Appearing before Jesus and having him evaluate our lives. Right? Not out of fear of, of him casting us away from his presence. But there should be that sense of, okay, I'm going to be evaluated by Jesus for everything that I've done. And, and pay attention to 2 Corinthians 5.10. Not my words, but the words of Paul, the words of God, right? He says, we will be judged according to everything we have done. We will receive what is due for everything that we've done, whether good or evil. And so, man, that's not going to be a judgment of a fear of you being condemned into the pits of hell. But I, I, I have to imagine that that's going to be the last moment of, dare I say even, pain, regret, remorse, before you enter into an eternity free from all of that. 
but the word will ultimately lay us bare before the beam of seed of Christ. That should motivate us to follow Solomon here and say, yes, I want to fear God and keep his commandments every single day. Again, Solomon could have easily written these words at the beginning of the book. He just said, I've got two verses for the book of Ecclesiastes. People probably would have liked it a lot more, wouldn't they? Maybe not. I don't know. You could have started with this and ended with it, and we could have walked away and gotten the point. But he wrote 11 and a half chapters, 11 and 7 eighths chapters before that, so that we would get an even bigger picture and that these words would take on an even greater meaning for us when he gives them to us here at the end. And really, man, at the end of the day, this is really what gives life meaning, isn't it? The fact that there is a beam of seed gives life meaning. It's why we're not nihilists. It's why we don't give up. It's why we don't despair of elections or viruses or inflation or any of that. Because we know the end is coming. And here's the thing, man. We're going to stand before Jesus and we're going to appear before him. And at the end of it, man, if you are in Christ, you're going to hear the greatest words that you could ever hear. That is well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. God, we long for those words. We anticipate those words. We desire those words to be said of us. And that final evaluation of us is ultimately an evaluation of what you work in us and through us, as you say in Philippians chapter 2. It's the Spirit transforming us, conforming us into the image of Christ. I pray that that would be the end of all of our matters. That we would be more like Jesus. More like Jesus as a result of this study. More like Jesus as a result of the goads that you apply to our lives. More like Jesus, God, as we give ourselves to the study of the one book that can truly transform us. The best book, the greatest thing that we can study, which is your word. God, I pray that you would make us more like Christ. And that certainly as we consider and look back at 17 weeks, that we would say, look, I don't want to waste what you have done through your word. God, we're grateful for the book of Ecclesiastes. Continue to use it to transform us, shape us, mold us in the future and years to come. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.